So here's what I want to do. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm going to talk. This is a long intro for a short sermon, I promise. It really is. I'm not good to my word on that. Come on now. I, I, once, a, once a guy starts to change after 18 years, you've got to give him credit for the last two months. No, last, it's been about six months, okay? But the bottom line is, is that there's stuff that's happening in the, in the news right now that I'm going to talk about for a second, but that's not what the sermon's about. I'm talking about it because it has a very definite play right into what the Lord is trying to say to us. And that is the way it always is, right? The things that are happening in the world are the things that God cares about, the things he's actually doing. And so we need to be engaging in them in a way to understand what he's doing, how he's doing it, and the whole thing. So with that in mind, let me just remind you of something that we talk about a lot too much in my mind, but it just keeps coming up and up and up, so I, I got to do it as the Lord would lead. But remember, two years ago, January 2016, I was on my walk. The Lord spoke to me in a way, and he said that he was withdrawing his protection from this country to a degree. It was not complete, it was not judgment, it was not that, but it was, he was withdrawing his protection to a degree so that people would experience more fully the consequences of their actions. Do you all understand that when we make decisions and we make choices, that there's a certain level of grace that's always in play that is protecting you from the fullness of an immediate consequence? Right? We understand that, right? And so what happens is he's withdrawing some of that protection so that we would feel, feel more fully the consequences of those decisions in order that we might repent of them. That we might say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't get that, I didn't understand that. Now that I do, this is not okay, this is not good, it's not taking me to a good place. I repent, I'm coming back to you. He's trying to get repentance, right? Now we've been saying that for two years and we've had too many occasions to point out where this exact thing is happening. It's been phenomenal to watch. But there's another layer of it that just kicked in in the last couple of weeks that I frankly didn't catch was gonna happen. And that is that the Lord would not just have us on a personal level and therefore together, but on a personal level experience the consequence of our actions more deeply, but then he would actually go to this level. And that is, Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. And I just want to say, that's what's happening right now. This is a post I did on Wednesday or Tuesday after Matt Lauer's latest thing. And there is just day after day after day, almost every day comes another revelation. Right now, we're sort of in the media and celebrity world where this is happening and also politics. Although, interestingly, you know, the politicians have set up for themselves protections that are ridiculous, that are completely indefensible and need to be repealed immediately so that their behavior is held accountable as is happening in the rest of the culture. And I, I just wanna make something incredibly clear. I don't think we're even close to the end of it. We might be, but I don't think so. This is just my guess, it's not a word from the Lord. But I think that there's, I think there's a whole layer of business leaders that are gonna start coming to pass. P women that were afraid to say things because of their professional careers and so on. They're gonna feel empowered and emboldened. Let me say something right now. There should never ever be another non-disclosure agreement in any court case for any reason in any shape or form as far as I'm concerned. Now, somebody out there is a lawyer and they know why it actually makes sense somewhere, but I cannot understand a person doing a horrible thing to somebody and then having giving them money and telling them you can't tell anybody. This is indefensible. As a culture, as a people, we shouldn't stand for it. We should literally make a law that you can't do that to somebody. You can't silence them by paying them. It's not okay. This whole thing is not okay. I actually think it's not just business. I, I literally am in conversation with some higher ups saying, are you getting ready for this in the church? Because there's going to be church leaders that have abused their positions of responsibility and so on and everything else. And there's going to be stuff that's going to come out there. And that's a whole other layer of a woman having to get past the shame, the embarrassment, the, the things that they might perceive going on. But they, it needs to come out. And this is, right? So we've got this whole thing. And I, 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 if I haven't already made it clear through the post and through what I'm saying right now, I want to say something. I am the son of a mother that I... I am the husband of a woman that I admire and love. 
I am the father of two daughters who are incredibly precious to me. I pray to God that we have a culture where they never will face these abominable things that these men have been doing. There is, it, is, it, is, it beggars the imagination. There is something toxic in the environment in which you get to, to where you could feel like it was okay to treat one of God's children in the way that these people have been treated, in the grotesque, ridiculous ways that they have been treated. There's this sexual thing that takes over and is absolutely... There's no defense for it. And I want to say something. And that is, I really want to say, this is the beginning of what millennials are going to do to our culture. I really believe this. When the baby boomers came in, they were a large group of people. And when they came through culture, everybody who lived before and after it, which I'm old enough to have done that, knows that when that bubble came through there, it changed everything. Well, guess where the next big bubble of babies is? It's in the millennials. And the millennials are now 30 years old, and they're starting to come through the culture. And they have a way of looking at gender and ethnicity and other types of things, which has a much sharper line of delineation than did the generations that came before. There, there, there's they, there's a, a certain black and whiteness to it and a definitiveness to it. And I just want to say something. Has anybody seen the kind of falls that we're experiencing right now? Literally, the most important people in various industries, are, these are people that make people tons of money and have been excused before, literally have written into their contracts that when these things happen, how they're going to handle it. Not that they shouldn't be happening, <laughs> but this is what these people were. And now we're just saying no. This is not acceptable. This is going to change how people look at this. And I pray to God that it does. I pray to God that we get this out of the politicians so that they start losing jobs. I pray to God that it goes through the whole culture so that every man who's ever thinking about anything like this ever again is going to have these fantastic falls in their mind to remind them to stop. This is not okay. This is not wanted. Stop. Right? So, and I want to thank, like I say, I think this is the beginning of what the millennials are going to do in this culture. I think there's going to be a whole lot of things that are going to change. Not everything's going to be perfect. There's going to be problems. There's going to be all the things that there is. But the bottom line is, I want to argue that this is God. This is how God would want us to treat one another. This is, he doesn't want us doing what we were doing in secret. He's the one that's calling it out now. He's showing us why we need to repent. Having said that, and I am not coming back on it in any way, shape, or form, but I just want to say something. I think something happened this last week about all of this that sort of takes it to a new level, another place. And the other place that it takes us is, is Matt Lauer. And here's why. How many people even knew who Harvey Weinstein was? I worked in Hollywood, so I know. His name was very big there, huge, as big as it gets. But you didn't know him. Nobody knew him. But Matt Lauer is somebody that you not only know, but literally the reason why he's paid more than any other single media personality, any other newsman anywhere, $25 million a year, the reason why he was being paid that was because people were wanted to invite him into their home. They liked him. They had a certain feeling about him. Right? They trusted him. That's exactly what the, when, you, when you go to it. They trusted him. And for all of a sudden... To find out that in secret he's been doing these other things, it's just a, it's a, what? See what I mean? We all know that men can be just boorish beyond belief, right? But this is beyond that. This is to a place that, it, how screwed up do you have to get to, to do the kinds of things that these people are doing? It takes a lot of steps to get there, okay? And none of it's okay. But having said that, here's what I want to say. The reason why I think this is so important and the reason why I think this is different. You don't care if Harvey Weinstein, and Kevin Spacey is an actor that you may like, but you know, part, of the, part of his whole appeal as an actor is that he kind of don't like him too. So if he gets in trouble, it doesn't mean much. But I just want to show you something. When Matt Lauer goes down, this is a picture of Savannah Guthrie announcing it. 
And she, by all accounts, was spot on. If you saw it, you know how perfect she was in her tone. Because on the one hand, she was incredibly uh, supportive of the woman who had come forward and said, this was a risky thing for you to do. It is a career move. It could have killed your career. It could have been swept under the rug and you'd be gone. And, the whole, and thank you for your boldness to come forward. She was very complimentary and supportive of the woman who came forward. She was also appalled at the behavior of her co-host. But there was one more level, the one that I think starts bringing it closer to us. That was she loves him. This is a person that she had worked with for years and years and years, and they had worked together, and by all accounts, by everybody, except for the ones that he sexually harassed, by all accounts, by everybody, this was a good person. This was a good, there's all kinds of stories about the nature of his character and the way that he acted towards people and the way that he cared for people and, and the kinds of things that he did. It was, it's extraordinary as you hear some of those kinds of things. And what, I'm, what I want to say is, is you can see it in her face. She is, she's just, she's devastated by that he did this, but there's also love for the person. And I think that that's where, this is starting to come because if anybody who's been reading soap or Bible reading knows that we've, in the last few days, last almost a week now, we've been in a section in Ezekiel, which you wouldn't know this if you didn't know the nature of the locations of these towns. But God does this. He goes to this town over here and he says, here's what you've done that I'm going to judge you for. And then he goes to this town. And then he goes to this town, and then he goes to this town, and then he goes to this town. And if you look at what the towns are, he literally spirals around until he gets to Israel at the center. He's bringing it closer and closer and closer to Israel. He's saying, I'm judging you for this, but I'm not letting you off either. And he brings it right home. And I want to tell you that I think the thing that's going on in our culture, as I've been saying for two years, as I think we've been looking at, is that God's trying to bring this home to us. This isn't something somebody's doing out there because you've never exposed yourself to a woman at work. Right? We can easily write that off. Most of the people in here have never done that. Praise God. Okay? As I'm sorry, it's hard to even say this, but there was a, a really excellent Saturday Night Live skit where this HR woman was just freaking out and what she was saying was, is, if you're at work, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be exposing yourself, period. And it was just, it was funny, but it was also profound to say, why do I have to say this? Right? I shouldn't be having to tell you that it's not okay to do that. So people can write it off and say, well, I don't do that, so that's not me. But here's what the problem is. Okay, great, you don't do that. But is there anybody in here that could stand up and say with a clear conscience, there's not one thing that you wouldn't be willing to confess and not be embarrassed about in front of this whole congregation? Is there anybody in here that would be so clean and so pure that there wouldn't be, you know, you would stand up and say, I have nothing, nothing in my thought life, in my actions, in anything that I'm embarrassed about? It's there. It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? This is the thing that's getting revealed. What God is trying to pull the curtain back on is there's something in us that is broken, even as Christians. There's something in us that's broken, and we need to be acknowledging it. We also need to hold on to who we are in Christ, as Kevin excellently pointed out last week. But the bottom line is, is there is this thing, uh, you know, uh, Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, the one who betrayed Caesar, right? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. It's not our fate. It wasn't preordained. It wasn't against anything we could control. The fault, Shakespeare's saying, is in us. There's something broken in us that makes even dear Brutus the most loyal of all to get sucked into this betrayal. And the fact is, of course, this is not anything the Bible hasn't been talking about from the very beginning. The Bible got there a lot sooner than Shakespeare did. Shakespeare got it from the scripture and from just watching people. Because what the Bible says is, is that we're enslaved to sin. 
If you don't know the Lord and you are here today, welcome. I am so happy that you're here. I just want to say something really easy if you want to understand what enslaved to sin means. Is there anything in your life that you would like to stop doing and you're having problems stopping? That's what it means. Right there. I'd really like to not ever do that again. And yet, there it is again. That's what it means. And what, it's, what the Bible makes a claim of is that's the state of mankind ever since Adam and Eve. They walked away and chose their own direction, not God's best. They chose to go their own way. We are their descendants, and we've been doing the same thing ever since. And so he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body might be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Or as Kevin so beautifully pointed out from Colossians last week, our only hope is to be in Christ. This is the only way that you can get free of the things that are besetting. There's lots of things that other people struggle with that you don't, and you can hold yourself up and say, I don't struggle with that, therefore I'm better. And that works really great right up until you discover the thing that's about you. And we all have something that's about us. And here's the point that I want to make in the sort of bigger moment of the season. It's Christmas. Christmas is this. It's lights and it's friends and it's fun and it's activities and it's brightness in the middle of darkness. And, and it's all of this really incredible love and gift giving and all of this kind of stuff. It's the most wonderful time of the year, truly. It really, really is, right? But the bottom line is, that there's something underneath Christmas that makes it continue to be that. How many other holidays have been corrupted by commercialism? And certainly Christmas has been, you know, billions and trillions of dollars worth of spending has tried to corrupt in a certain sense or tried to divert what it was about and Santa Claus and all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is there's a thing that happened at Christmas that is so profound that it sets the wellspring for the goodwill that people pour out to each other this time of year, always. There's something that underlies all of it that isn't just Jesus coming and being with us, showing us how to live, and it isn't even just him being on the cross. There is something that is even more fundamental, that is even more close to us, and that's the thing. I, I really think something. If you really want to appreciate Christmas, you need to hear what we're about to talk about. Because what God gave us is exceeding extraordinary and beyond what anybody even had any idea was possible. So with that in mind, Diego, this is phenomenal. I'm so glad. You were just doing a choir, right? Didn't you just sing a solo in a choir? Didn't I see that online? Oh, oh. oh, it was his little brother? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought it was Diego, okay. I didn't. He's awesome too, though. Okay. <laughs> he says, she says, Diego's awesome too. Would you pray for us? And would you do me a favor, Diego? Don't just pray for the sermon in another church like we normally do. Pray for the sermon, but would you lift up this country? Would you just pray for God to come and to touch his country and to just do a, a miracle of grace to restore us, to bring us to a new place? Go ahead. Yeah, we thank you for another week here at Lake Sam, Lord. Just thank you for another day just to be here and to come into your presence. Lord, I pray you just for blessing over the sermon, Lord, that you'll empower Kurt as he, as he speaks to all of us, that his words will not go just pat in, pass through one ear and out the other, Lord, but that we'll truly feel the effect of what you're trying to say through him. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we lift up Mill Creek Foursquare Church. Lord, Amen. even now, as, as they're going through their, their, their sermons, Lord, I pray that you empower them as well to reach new lives and show people the power that your love can bring to this world. Thank you. Lord, we lift up this nation and really this era of, of tribulation and all the chaos that reigns in our governments, in our international affairs, in our media, everything that our country has become in the years that it's been around, Lord. One thing remains that this country was founded and continued to be founded through the years as a country that has been seeking you. Politicians, political leaders, uh, 
social leaders have always pursued you in their affairs in order to make this country better, Lord. And we pray that that won't be different anymore now. Times change, and our look on you as a nation has definitely changed. But one thing remains, Lord, you still are alive. You are alive in us. You are alive in the church. You are very alive in this nation. And we pray that that won't fade away, Lord, that people will see that your power truly shines, and I pray that you will empower your people to create change in our nation. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Diego. Thank you. Yet one more example of that God is still alive and is still moving on hearts. All right, so where we are in Luke, last couple of days of, of Jesus' life, we've been watching how Jesus is discipling his disciples, saying that he's doing the same with us. So we're going through this too, and you're going to see that. And what happens is, is that the religious leaders have come to Jesus as he was preaching and says, basically challenged him. And Jesus has answered back in ways that were astounding. And then when he's done with that, he actually challenges the religious leaders with that question. How can I be, how can this Messiah be David's son, but also his Lord? And we, we saw last time I preached, which was a couple weeks ago, we saw that the, if they'd answered that question, they probably wouldn't have killed him because he's the only answer to that question, okay? Having said that, they're unable to answer. And so Jesus, now watch the, watch the wording here. Right then, after they've asked that question, he's asked them and they can't answer him. Then with the crowds listening, he turns to his disciples, us, and he says this. Beware of these teachers of religious laws for they love to parade around in flowing robes and to love and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head tables at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Now do understand something. Jesus knows that in a couple of days, they're going to kill him. And one of the reasons why they're going to kill him is because of what he says right here. So just understand the nature and the character of Jesus. He's not provoking them to do that. They're not, they don't have to do that. But the fault, dear Brutus, is in ourselves. There's a fault, and he's touching that fault. Now, having said that, here's what I want you to see. These people really love the Lord. I mean, excuse me, really love the world. What they're supposed to be doing is loving the Lord as in contrast to loving the world, right? Right? They're not supposed to be so consumed with the things of the world that they just become part of it. They're supposed to be so loving God that they point people to a better way than anything the world has to offer. That's what they're supposed to be doing, right? But look what Jesus is saying about them. They love fine clothes. They love flowing robes. Can you just picture what he's saying? As they're walking around and doing things, it's like there's this majesty of their flowing, expensive robes, and they're going about, and you can just hear the other side of that coin, which is the common people who could never afford gowns, robes like this, being envious of them. The people that they were supposed to be washing their feet, they're happy to have looking at them with envy. This is backwards. This is completely upside down, right? And it goes on because what he's saying is they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. Can you, you can see this, can't you? Just picture it in your mind. As they walk in the marketplaces, you can just see them holding themselves up with their flowing gowns and the, and the whole thing, looking down their noses at the people that they're supposed to be helping. And they love seats of honor in the synagogues and at the head tables at banquets and the fourth row center tickets to Hamilton. They want the best because they love the world. This is to them. And just in case anybody should misunderstand where their hearts really are, one of the reasons that they're rich is because they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. In a male-dominated society, property rights usually held by strength, by some law, but usually by strength, usually male. These are people that are stealing their property in order to enrich themselves, in order to wear nice robes and be in fancy restaurants. Right? 
They pretend to be pious. What's going on? What happened? They pretend to be pious. What's pious? Real simple. Pious means godly. And what he's saying is they put on a facade of being godly when in fact they're consumed with worldly. They're not consumed with God. If they were, they would never cheat a widow. You see it? Now, here's the deal. Watch this now. The very next thing that happens, remember he said, why did he, how many examples could he have used about the bad things that the religious were doing? There's lots, right? But the one that he used was widows. Do you think he knew what was coming next? Because what comes next is he looked up. He says this, then looks up, and he saw the rich dropping their offerings in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow, widow, dropping in two tiny coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So here's, here's, what's, here's what's happening to the disciples, to us, in this moment. He has brought out two totally different kinds of people. One of them are the religious people who should be getting it and should be helping the widow, but instead they're incredibly worldly, in love with the world. And then there's this widow who's doing what? Is there, just again, take yourself. If you literally had two pennies, what would be the model day equivalent? Let's say a hundred bucks. That's your last hundred dollars to your name, period, right? Would you go and would you put that in the offering? Would you do that? You need to eat. Surely God will understand that you need to eat. What's this woman actually doing? You're my provider. You're my only hope. You're it. I need you. You're my only hope. So I give it all to you. Now, I read that story, and I want to just read the story, and I want to do what we do when we just casually read stories like this. I want to condemn those stupid, evil, religious leaders, and I want to commend and, and love this widow, and I want to assume that I'm certainly not like them, and I'm maybe not perfectly like her, but I'm enough like her that I can go on without having to really take a moment smell the rose, or whatever else it might be that's the aroma coming up here. <laughs> do you see it? But here's what I do, and here's what we do. We do soap. We read that scripture, and then we, look, we let the Lord talk to us and get the speed bump in us. And then we learn what it's going to do to our lives so that we can pray about it. Because here's what happens when I read that story, and I let the Lord talk to me about it. Here's what happens in me. Crap. I'm, I'm a Christian for 40 years. And you know what? Honestly, graded on the curve, I'm doing really good. I literally have given everything away. Literally did that. And I do it all the time in my life. I'm doing really good. Except when I actually think about how the Pharisees were, I have this thing in me. I really love parts of the world. I don't care too much about the accolades of others. Thankfully, God, I love other people. But like it says in the scripture, Jesus loved them, but he didn't give himself to them because he knew it was in them. When people disappoint me, it just doesn't hurt me like it probably ought or like it tends to. I just don't give myself to people. I just love them. I know that they're failures. You know why I know they're failures? Because I'm a failure. And so I extend the grace to them that I, that I have, that it's in my life too, right? But when you talk about four-seat center Hamilton seats, I want those. I don't want to sit in the balcony at the very corner. I want the really good seats. I like that kind of stuff. Now, now let's be really clear about something. God's really good at nice stuff. You talk about living in a nice home and thinking that's a problem or driving a nice car. These are not problems for God. God made the nicest stuff there is. The universe, the earth, and all that's in it. That's the nicest thing you've ever seen. Unbelievably nice. 
God has no problem with nice. And throughout the Bible, he has no problem with giving nice to his own. The problem is, is there's a fault in us, a Jekyll and Hyde, a fault in us. And the problem is, is that when he gives us stuff, it does something to us. Right? It breaks it. Kevin said something genius last week. He said, there's a problem in us. And so what we want to do is we just say, well, then I'll just never, ever have any money. That's the solution, right? Just stay away from it forever. That's actually a very pharisaical thing to do. The problem is not to stay away from the problems, the areas that are your problem. The problem is to go into those areas and fix the stinking problem. If you're scared of the dark in the basement, go get a chair, walk downstairs, sit in the basement until you're not afraid anymore. Figure it out. God wants to do all kinds of things through you, and we draw our lines in the wrong places. What we've got to do is we've got to understand God doesn't have a problem with your nice house and your nice car. He has a problem when your nice house and your nice car are screwing you up. He doesn't like to see his children hurt by what he's giving them to bless them. He doesn't like what it does to us. It makes us really like the world. And pretty soon, there's two things that are enthroned in our life. They're very definitely God and Jesus. Very definitely. And nice things too. And the key is, right here, could you in a moment, would you, as Becca Joe said a few weeks ago, just give it. If he led you to do that, could you do that? And the truth is, the answer for the vast majority of us is no. I can tell you, I've told you before, but at one point in my life, I had a major asset that had two different pieces to it. And I was out of place, and I was praying a lot and everything else, and God said, sell half of that and give it away. And when I first heard that, I told Julie, and by about, it took me about seven days to figure out how not to do that and still feel good about myself. And about five years later, I had nothing. There's a brokenness in us. There's a thing in us that we have to recognize and that we have to understand how God is healing us from. And I'm going to take you on that journey right now. It's going to take us just a second, but I want you to watch this. Sanctification is a fancy theological word for holiness, which is a fancy theological word for not being an idiot, for not choosing to go your own way. It's a fancy theological word for being like God. Holiness just means doing his stuff and not this other stuff, being about him. Now, the, the interesting thing about sanctification as a theological concept is this. It is now, not yet. Now, remember all the paradoxes there are in Christianity. God is three and one. You got to hold on to both truths if you're going to know who God is. Predestination is true, and so is free will. You got to hold on to both of those things. Jesus Christ is fully man, and therefore could take our sin upon himself as not a replacement, but as an actual person that was taking mankind's sin upon himself but he was also fully and completely God. So there's all these paradoxes, and sanctification is one of them. How can you be now sanctified, now truly holy? Is there anybody in here that would raise their hand and say, yes, right now I am truly and perfectly holy? Is there anybody who can raise their hands? Paul Weston's here, and the fact is, is he could. And it's not because he's a good man. It's because he understands the theology. And the theology is that in Christ, you are right now completely, fully, and utterly holy. And I'm going to show you how to understand that here in two seconds. But you have to know that about yourself. If you don't know that about yourself, here's what happens. You feel like a scumbag all the time. And you're always beating yourself up, and you're never good enough to do anything. And God's calling you to great things, and you won't do them because you just see yourself as such a slime bag. Now, the other side of the coin is, is there anybody in here that would say, I recognize I'm not yet fully sanctified? I think everybody should raise their hand on that one too, right? I get it, right? And you've got to remember that because if, if, if you think you're perfect, 
If you think you're perfectly holy, then it's just, you're just waiting for the fall. <laughs> you know, we're all just waiting for the other shoe to drop because you think you're holy and everybody else is looking at you going, we know better. <laughs> that's not judgment, it's just true, right? And so the fact is you have to live in the tension of two truths, the now and the not yet. And when you walk there, you walk properly in God. He can move you to do anything that he wants to do through you and you never get too big a head about it. But having said that, I'm gonna use an illustration so that you can really get a hold of how to think about now, not yet, in a way that you'll remember. And many of you who have been here for a long time, and there's several people that have, you've seen this before at least a couple of times, but I haven't done this, I checked, I haven't done it in over three years, and I felt like the Lord was bringing it back, and I was going, well, people have heard that before, Lord. I always talk to the Lord like that, and then he always points out to me that I should just do whatever he says. <laughs> so back and sure enough it was three years ago and I recognize there's a whole lot of people here that have never seen this even though I reference it all the time and you just don't know what I'm talking about. So we're going to create some common vocabulary here not just for us to be able to talk about ourselves but for us to understand ourselves. And the, the illustration I'm using is cottonwood and oak tree. Now here's what a cottonwood tree looks like. Do you see the little car down there on the right? See how small it is? A cottonwood tree can go up to 190 plus feet. That's a cottonwood, big, tall, strong. Look at that. Beautiful, magnificent, majestic, huge, strong, right? Everything. But the funny thing about a cottonwood tree is it turns out it's what we call soft wood. And soft wood is something that bugs can get in and rot can get in and it'll eat it out. And we have a bunch of cottonwood trees in Jackson and we cut down trees all the time. And we'll cut down cottonwood trees and almost every single time they look like that. They're completely hollow on the inside. They've been eaten out by bugs and rot. Now, that's a perfect metaphor for a person who doesn't know the Lord. Now, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, again, I'm really happy that you're here, but I want you to think about something. It is not uncommon in arts, movies, books, and so on, and the things that we deal with creatively to deal with what our lives are about, it is not this theme is not uncommon. I feel and I look to all the world like I am big and tall and strong, and inside something's rotting and eating me up. That is a common theme of the arts. And the reason why is because it's common to mankind, common to humankind. You see it? You can be eaten out on the inside and then all of a sudden a big strong wind comes and you just topple. You just fall over because you don't have a core. There's just something missing. We call it midlife crisis, call it all kinds of different words that we use for it. But the fact is it's incredibly common. Now, if we were to illustrate this, here's our cottonwood tree. And here's what God does. He comes, he says, you have, there was a cottonwood that went in the ground. A seed is the thing from which everything that is ever going to happen comes. Right? You put a cottonwood seed in the ground, you do not get a walnut tree. You put a cottonwood tree in the ground, what you get is a cottonwood tree. So we got planted with Adam and Eve's sin, and we come out sinners, hollowed. But what happens is, is God comes along and he brings us a new nature, a new seed from which everything that is him is going to come because this seed is him. And he plants that inside of us. And what happens is it starts to grow up inside of us. Now, just watch the scriptures here. Look, Peter says, having been born again, born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What's that mean? It means before you had a seed that was corrupting, that was decaying, that was perishable, that had an end date on it. But now I'm giving you a seed that is perfect, that is pure, and that has no end date, that is incorruptible. It cannot be corrupted. In fact, this is the way Nicodemus, by the way, can I just say, Nicodemus is one of my favorite people in all the, old, in all the New Testament. Might be one of my favorite people in all the Bible. Here's why. When Jesus was challenging those religious leaders and he asked them a serious question that if they'd have just considered it, it would have made a difference in their lives. Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders who was seeing what was going on and knew that something else was going on. And he comes to Jesus at night, dark, because he's hiding he doesn't want other religious leaders to see what he's doing, but he says, look, we get it. Nobody could be doing what you're doing except that God was doing it through them. So what's going on? Jesus literally interrupts Nicodemus to say this. 
It says he answered him, but he interrupts him. And he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, I don't understand. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. Let me make it clear what that means, water. When a woman is about to give pregnancy, what's the first thing that happens to know that this is happening now? Her water breaks. And what he's saying is there's another kind of a birth that is of the spirit. So he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, I said, that you must be born again. You have a corrupting, corrupted nature, and it's going badly for you, and I'm here to born you again. I'm here to put a new nature inside of you, which is, and this is one of the most important scriptures in all of scripture. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because whose seed? Adam and Eve's? God's. Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. Where does the seed come from from him? The Holy Spirit, God. Because his seed remains in him, he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is God's nature that's in him, which is why, by the way, you cannot sin. Can God sin? No. So what happens is he puts that nature in you and it starts to grow. And, and after time, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When you first get saved, people know that there's something different in you. But you come 10 years later to somebody who's really seeking after the Lord, you're an entirely different human being. Because this thing that God has born in you has grown up and become what it was supposed to be. And you look different. You act different. You are different. Your being is different. And anybody who knows you can see it and say it. I always want to tell you, you've had people, I've, I've done this sermon before with people that knew me before. And I'll say to them, how different am I? And they're always going, you were the last person we ever thought was going to get saved. You know, you're a miracle. I am, okay, at the depths of my depravity, knew no bounds. I don't want to get into that. Because I've become much more like that. Now, I do want to say something. Look at me, and you're still going to see some cottonwood, aren't you? There's still stuff in me. It's real easy to see. I see it a lot. Other people see it pretty good, too. But the bottom line is, is, when God looks at us, what does he see? Where's that cottonwood going when you die? That's the stuff that's covered by Jesus' blood. That's the stuff that goes into the ground and decays and disappears. What comes back out of the ground? What is actually the thing that lasts forever? The stuff that God is. And when he looks at you right now, you have to understand something. When he looks at you right now, what he sees is what he made you. He sees the new creature that he made you. That's what he sees. That's who you are to him. That's why he's crazy about you. Now, he knows that there's cottonwood there, which he died for. So it's covered in the blood. So it's removed far as east is from west, as far as he's concerned. You are that new creature. That's who you are to him. And we have to remember that every moment of our lives so that we're capable of responding to whatever he calls us to do. Because it isn't us, it's him in us, us in him. But the fact of the matter is at the same time, when you look at yourself, you should never be saying, oh, I'm so good, <laughs> right? Pride goeth before fall. Can you see what now not yet means? Have I given you a picture here that should always resonate in your heart forevermore about what this means? Now, God, his nature, what he's creating, he, who you really are, not yet, the whole picture that still has some cottonwood in the picture. That's why you'll hear me say all the time in sermons, I'll say, there's still some cottonwood in you, right? There's still some cottonwood to be gotten rid of. You're never going to get rid of it all, all right? Look, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You literally can set your mind on the things of cottonwood, or you can set your minds on the things of the Spirit. If you set your mind on cottonwood, what happens? Then you do things and you die. What happens when you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? 
then you do things and you live. Those who, set, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's will. Indeed, not. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, therefore, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, which is to say if he's come and made you new. If he's given you that new nature, he's the one that put it in there and he's the one that resides with it. With you. It's not even with you. It is you. Do you understand? He's put his nature in you and he's with it at all times. Leading, guiding, helping. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. One side. Other side? Everyone who's been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. And that not able to sin is the one that we don't get. All the rest of this we get. I get how I'm an amalgam of something good and something bad. What I don't get is that I'm truly not able to sin in that inner part of me. I'm, it is Jekyll and Hyde is the right metaphor. There's something inside of me which is being put to death. And there's something inside of me which is growing up in life and peace. And what I want to say about this right now, bringing it home back to Christmas, is this. If you want to understand the thing that God did that will make your appreciation for Christmas go to places that are profound, that will anchor it and ground it, that will have a wellspring of life in it, then what you want to remember is, is that when Jesus came, it wasn't just so that as a person he could take upon himself what was due you and die on the cross. It wasn't even just to show you how to live. It's that Jesus made possible for you to be new. To have a new life in you. God coming to us is huge, massive, unimaginable that God should be born a baby. But honestly, from our perspective, even more profound, he's made me new. He's put a whole new nature in me. And everybody, as Paul says, why do I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do want to do? Oh my gosh. I used to want to do those things even though I knew I shouldn't. But now there's actually something in me that really doesn't want to do them. Oh my gosh, I'm new. I'm a new creation. I'm going to start living in that, not the other. He makes it possible for us not to be ruled by our baser instincts. He makes it possible even in the midst of the ego and the, the power and the prestige that a powerful person would have not to get corrupted, not to, not to get to heights that end up hurting you. He makes it possible for you to live in a way that no matter how much power you have, no matter how much you have, no matter how high God has raised you, that you will always have in your heart that what you're here for is to bend down and wash feet. That's the highest thing. That's the thing that our flesh can't do because it wants to be over. But the things of God want to come and serve and pour out. Do you see it? It's extraordinary what's happened. So I want to say something. If you really want to know God, if you really want to know this Christmas season, I want you to do something right now. Do you remember that the Magi came and gave gifts to Jesus. This is a fake scene because it happened after the manger and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't even a manger, by the way, but whatever. Okay? But the bottom line, here's the three kings that are giving him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's a great sermon to be had in that. But bottom line, do you, you, you remember this scene right now? Well, here's what we're going to do right now. And I want somebody to come up and do a little background in just a second. I can't. Kevin, is it you? Thanks. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a second, and I want us to give God a gift. I want you to give him a gift. But here's what I want you to give him. 
not your gold and your frankincense and your myrrh. I want you to give him your worst. I want you to give him the stuff that's in you that's the most embarrassing, that's the most difficult, that you would never want to have trumpeted live for all the world to see. And I want you to come and to lay at his feet the things that are in you that just you just haven't gotten victory over. They're just still there, still making a doing a cottonwood thing in you. I want you to do what the widow did. I want you to drop in this thing. I want you to give him all. And here's why. When you give God your very most difficult, what he always gives in return is new life. Now that's something to celebrate. So just take a minute right now, would you? Reach down in front of you.